We'll remain standing, and let's take out our Bibles. And as we do so, let's remember what a great honor it is, what a great privilege it is to be able to open God's Word and to read it together, to, to learn right from God as He speaks to us through His Word. We're in Romans chapter 9 this morning. We're going to be reading uh, verses 1 through 29, just to uh, give us a, a good running start at where we're at this morning. We'll particularly be, be considering verses 9, beginning in verse 19 and through verse 23 this morning, if you want to give special attention, attention there, but give heed to all of this, because every word of this is God's word to us. Romans chapter 9 will begin in verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use? And another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles? As indeed he says in Hosea, those who were not my people I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, 
Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth that it brings to us. We thank you for the uh, instruction that it gives, for the encouragement that it gives, for the conviction that it gives, for the promises that it gives. Uh, And for all of those things and more, Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We pray that you would be in the preaching and with the preaching of your word now, that it would go forth with boldness, with accuracy, and that you, as you have promised, will not let it return void, but it will accomplish what you have set it to do. We trust you in these things, and we give you thanks for them. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. We read quite a long bit of this passage of this chapter this morning, and we did that because as I mentioned at the beginning, we want to kind of have an idea of where we've been, where we're going. We want to have an idea of the, the context of the particular verses that we're going to be looking at. It's always important to keep the context of a particular verse or group of verses in mind as you seek to learn what God is saying to you through those particular verses. In fact, there is perhaps no more important principle in studying your Bible than context. Almost all of the errors that we find in the church today that come and go throughout the history of the church um, are foisted upon us through men who pull verses out of their context and make them say whatever they want them to say. And so we want to be on guard against that. And, and reading verses and understanding verses in their context is a key to doing that. In these opening verses, uh, speaking of the context of chapter 9, Paul has expressed what he termed his great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart over the fact that his kinsmen, according to the flesh, his fellow Jews, had largely rejected Paul's own teaching, the gospel of God, which Paul was not ashamed to bring to the Roman church, which he recognized was the power of God unto salvation. And because of what some people may assume are implications of what he has been teaching here, especially in regard to the promises of God and of God's own faithfulness to his promises, Paul has undertaken to explain here in this chapter that the failure of the Jews to receive the gospel and to believe Christ, that that failure of the Jews is not a failure of God. Because, he says, the promises of God given in the Old Testament to the people uh, concerning the people, uh, God's people, were not intended for all of the physical descendants of Israel, not for all national Israel. Paul puts it this way, as we read this morning, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. Not every Jew is a child of God. And so the promises were never intended for every Jew, but for that Israel within Israel that we've talked about as we've gone through these earlier verses. And the decision of who is in that Israel within Israel, the the decision of who is a child of God, even speaking of among the Gentiles, who is a child of God and who is not, 
and this is really at the core of the teaching of this chapter, that decision is God's decision. God is the sovereign ruler of this world. And as Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord. It is His. It is His gift to bestow on who He will. He is the one that chooses whom to save. He is the one that chooses whom to leave in their sin. And that decision is based not on the things that we would think it would be. And Paul has brought two examples forward to, to show that as witnesses to point this out. That God sovereignly chose Isaac, the second-born son of Abraham, to receive the blessings of the covenant instead of first-born Ishmael. Isaac, we've read, was the son promised to receive the covenant and the blessings and, and being in a relationship with God. But then also, Paul pointed to an um, even more even uh, race. Even more, uh, even in the case of Isaac's sons, twin sons, Esau and Jacob. Again, God made a sovereign choice, and not the choice we would think. He chose second-born, mama's boy, conniving schemer Jacob over first-born, man's man, Esau. Then Paul in examining this has inserted a pause, a detour, to deal with objections, two objections specifically that, that could be heard being screamed from Paul's opponents. The first is the objection, that's not fair. If that is true, that God just chose not from anything in them, not because of anything concerning them, but just on his own decision, that's not fair. Is there injustice, the, the opponent asks, on God's part? Because it sure sounds like it is. It sure sounds like there is injustice. But Paul says, not at all. In fact, he says, absolutely, positively not at all. He then explained, as we saw last week, that God has that authority because He is God to make the choices that He wants to make. That sovereignty is part of the very nature of God. And again, Paul proved it with references to two Old Testament quotes. One, a quote regarding Moses, or given to Moses, one given to Pharaoh. To Moses, God said, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And to Pharaoh, he said, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And so Paul dispensed with that first question in that way. This morning we come to the second question. It and Paul's response to it is found in verses 19 through 23, and that will be what we're looking at this morning. Still dealing really with the, the question of the fairness of God and, and why it is without question fair and just that God chooses some to save and not others. And again, based solely on His good pleasure and nothing else. 
Nothing in man, nothing in his background, nothing in his upbringing, nothing in his works, his works in the past, his works in the present, his works in the future. None of that enters into it. And that's whether we're talking about uh, men from Israel or people from Reading. It is God's sovereign choice. And so then comes a second objection. It's in verse 19 there. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? Or we could paraphrase it by saying, if God hardens some people, why does he then turn around and blame them for being hard? If it is God's will that makes the difference, and his will is to harden some people, what can they do about it? For, he says, who can resist his will? And the mindset behind that question is really the same as it was in the first question. It's the question of fairness. It's really a challenge to the right of God to make these kinds of decisions. If God is the one making the choice, if if he shows mercy And especially if he hardens whom he will, then why does God still judge us as sinners? If God's judgment is not based, if his decision is not based on willful disobedience, but on a a God-caused hardening, then again, is God unjust? Now, before we let Paul answer that, let me take just a moment to give you a quick reminder if you weren't here last week and if you weren't let me encourage you to jump online and and watch the sermon from last week so you have the all of the pieces of this all of the context of this important passage here but if you weren't let me explain to you just very briefly we don't want to cover all of the same ground again but explain about this hardening that God says that he does he shows mercy on whom or gives mercy to whom he will and whom he wills he hardens Paul says remember that that contrast there and it's in verse 18 so then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills the contrast there is between God showing mercy and God hardening so in hardening a person like he did with Pharaoh God specifically does not show them mercy he allows them to remain in their hardened state which all men began with all humans are hard-hearted by nature it's a result of our fallenness man starts out hardened and sinful and wicked and aligned against God and God's hardening of such a person happens when God judicially leaves them in that condition when he takes away some of the restraint that he exercises against all people which he does no one no sinner is as bad as he could possibly be and that is creditable to the restraint and the mercy of God in restraining the sin even of non-Christians God restrains even the sinfulness of unbelievers so that they do not run headlong into the worst sins that they could his mercy is like a dam that holds back our waters of iniquity from pouring out in a flood 
But sometimes, as with Pharaoh, as with many whom God sovereignly chooses to harden, God steps back. He backs off. To use the analogy from last week, he he gives more leash. He opens the door. He removes some of that restraint. And an unrestrained sinner, uh, to whatever degree he is unrestrained, will rush forward into more sin. Our hearts are just that wicked. The important thing is that when God is said to harden a sinner, it is that kind of passive hardening that he does. He does not work sin in them. He does not put evil in their hearts. It's already there, isn't it? And so he just takes his hand off and says, you can have your way a little more. God does not tempt anyone to sin. He allows them to go on as they want to go anyway. Now, yes, it is a sovereign choice of God to do that. But that choice does not involve God in the sinner's sin. It is a, what we call a permissive decree of God to leave them in their sin and to allow them to go on in it. So back to the question, why does he still find fault? Who can resist his will? Well, that's the question, and in these verses we get Paul's answer. And he gives it in two parts, two sections, that correspond here to verses 20 and 21, that's the first section, and verses 22 and 23. And we could uh, call them Paul addressing the wrong attitude and the wrong understanding. And Paul, as you see, first doesn't jump right in and answer the question. He doesn't answer the accusation directly. And in fact, he probably doesn't answer the question to the satisfaction of someone who would actually come and ask that question. And we'll see why that is as we go along. But first, Paul addresses the heart of the question. He addresses the the attitude of the question. The underlying, the underlying attitude, that is to say, really, the audacity of the question, the arrogance of the question, the arrogance in the heart of the questioner. At the beginning of verse 20, here is his answer. He says, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Stop there. Who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Wow. Wow kind of harsh. What do you really think, Paul? Well, he thinks that there is no need to defend God's justice. He already did that back in the earlier verses. He thinks that it is an affront to God to even ask this question. And he thinks that he needs to remind the questioner and to remind all of us that God is God and you and I are not. The phrase, O man, is at the beginning of that little phrase there in the Greek. And and God is at the end, setting up a, a strong emphasis in the way the question is asked. And the word man there is a word that emphasizes the humanness of the questioner. Who are you as a mere creature, as dust? Who are you to... To answer back 
to talk back to God. I remember my mom on many occasions saying, don't talk back to me. She was obviously in error because I never talked back to my mother. Probably shouldn't say things like that from the pulpit. (laughs) But God, Paul is saying, who are you to talk back to God? Person, human, man, woman, child. And here Paul, he asks this question briefly, but but we recall that the same question, uh, who are you to answer back to God, that same question was asked in the Old Testament. It was asked of Job by God, not briefly as Paul does here, but for four agonizing chapters, agonizing for Job at least. Just a sample, who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me. If you have understanding, who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line out upon it? He says, dress for action like a man, I will question you. Even you, will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? Have you an arm like God? And can you thunder with a voice like His? And it goes on and on and on. Till Job just throws up his hands and covers his mouth and says, I'm done. I won't say another word. But that's what Paul is saying is, who are you as a human to answer back to the Creator? You know, Paul's using this in a very specific context here, but, but isn't that sin, isn't that arrogance a very common condition in our world today that man stands to challenge God at every turn? What foolishness and what a danger it is to do that. And it is only, once again, the mercy of God that stops God from judging men right then and there as they challenge God. And we see it in so many ways. On one hand, it is the atheist challenging the very existence of God. You've heard stories of the atheists who say, if God is real, let Him strike me down. I'll wait. And He doesn't, of course, which only proves that God doesn't take orders from atheists. On the other hand, there is the scientist, not all, but many, who say that the majesty of God's creation is is an accident, the product of chance, the product of mutation. Who challenge God as creator. On a more moral front today, there are those who challenge God's word, who challenge the very existence of it, or who challenge the the qualities of it. They say it's, it's just a book written by men. It doesn't have any relevance for us today. After all, it's, it's full of errors. You know, this is not God speaking to us. And they challenge God. They challenge God for the things that are in it. There are those who challenge God's regulations today concerning marriage. Don't they? 
What is marriage? Who can enter into marriage? Well, God's told us, but man says, no, we'll decide that. Even more recently, the world has begun challenging the very identity that God has given to individuals. Even down to that most basic aspect of our identity, that God made them male and female. That too today is being thrown off by young people in our world. And while adolescence has its share, more than its share, of of life-altering and confusing aspects, you adults, you've been there. You know what adolescence is like. You who haven't yet, you'll get there. But there is a whole movement today that preys on those weaknesses and the confusion and that, it, that exploit our young people, causing them to question what God has decided about them, what God has said about them, how God has made them. And the world says, God doesn't get to decide if you are male or female. You do. You can choose to be one or the other or back and forth. You can choose to be some combination of the two or something altogether different. You can make up whatever you want. And to all of these, the atheists, the scientists, the the gay marriage advocates, the LGBTQ movement, Paul would say the same thing. He would say, but who are you, O man, to answer back to God? And to support this, Paul reaches into his bag of scriptural analogies and draws upon one that is used several times in the Bible, and that is the analogy of the potter and the clay. In the second half of verse 20, Paul draws on a couple of passages, Isaiah 29.16 and Isaiah 45.9, and he says this, Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Isaiah 29.16, for example, says, Shall the potter be regarded as the clay, that the thing made should say of its maker, He did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, He has no understanding. You see, that's the arrogance of man. This is the arrogance of questioning God and his authority and his right to choose here in the, in the context that we're looking at here, who, to whom he will show mercy and, to, and whom he will harden. And indeed, Paul says, going on in verse 21, he says, As the potter, no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. Again there, Paul draws on Isaiah. He also draws on Jeremiah with the message that the potter, the the maker of, of ceramics out of clay, the potter has the authority. He has the the right to take a lump of clay and make what he wants with it. And to make different items from the same lump of clay. And as I say, not only does he have the ability to do that, not only does he have the skill to do that, not only does he have the power to do that, to choose what to make and to make what he will, but he specifically has the right to do that. He has the authority to do it. That's Paul's point here. The word that's translated 
here in verse 21, has the potter no right? That word is the same word that Jesus used in speaking of his authority to lay down his life and to take it back up again. It's the same word in Matthew 28, 18, when Jesus said that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. That's the idea here. And he's saying that the potter has right over the clay. It is his prerogative. The clay has no prerogative. And he has no right to answer back and accuse the potter of unrighteousness. Why did you make me this way? Now Paul's use of that analogy, because it's used so many times in the Old Testament, it would be no surprise or be no difficulty for the Jew of Paul's day, the mature Christian of his day, the, the attender of synagogue of his day to understand. And it's not only from the Old Testament that we get this idea, but also in the other writings that the Jews held uh, in high esteem. In Shirach 33.13, it says, Like clay in the hand of the potter to be molded as he pleases, so all are in the hand of their maker to be given whatever he decides. So a very well-known analogy here. And the context of of these passages in the Old Testament regarding the the potter and the clay is, is slightly different than what Paul is using it for here, but Paul is using it here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And the idea drawn from all of them is the same, and it is simply that God has the right to do what He chooses with His creatures. He has the right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. The potter can take a lump of clay and make some of it into a banquet cup and some of it into a chamber pot. That is his right. It is God's right, therefore, as the potter to show mercy or to harden according to his will and to challenge God's right in that, to make the veiled assertion that God is not fair, that he doesn't have the right, is an affront to God. And our attitude, people, should be to be content in the knowledge that God is good and God is just and God is merciful. He shows mercy to sinners and he does all of that according to his purpose. We should be content in that. We must be content in that. To do otherwise is to offend God by stepping over that line and pretending that the clay has the right over the potter, which is never the case. And so having dealt with the wrong attitude, Paul now turns and addresses the wrong understanding. Now I've said a couple of times over the past few weeks here in in Romans chapter 9 that that this passage is fairly straightforward. It's been perhaps difficult to accept, we've said, but, but easy to understand if we have ears to hear. And that's still the case, though we might confess here that we are driving sort of into the outskirts of simple town because Paul dives here uh, to change the metaphor dives into some some deep theological waters and in these verses he answers now to, to a degree the objection regarding the right of God to show mercy to some and to harden some based on his own pleasure and he gives three purposes here for God's choice 
his choice to save some and not to save others. And remember, let let us always remember that God is not under any obligation to save anyone, is he? Man has plunged himself into his predicament of being under the judgment and the wrath of a righteous God. And God could justly, absolutely justly, have left every man in that predicament of his or her own making and not be opened up to a charge of unrighteousness. We all deserve hell. But God has chosen to show mercy. But he has chosen to show that mercy not to all, but to some. Some get justice, some get mercy. God decides. He has chosen to show mercy to Isaac, but not Ishmael. To Jacob, but not Esau. To Peter, but not to Judas. To you, but not to your unsaved neighbor. And that is his right, as we've seen. But now we see a little bit of the purpose to which God puts those decisions. Three things that God designed to show by saving some, but not all. And let's read verses 22 and 23 and see if you can pick them up. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Did you catch them? Three things. Things that it says that God desired to do, that is, that he determined to do. The first in verse 22, is he desired to show his wrath. His wrath against sin, to demonstrate that, to demonstrate his justice. The second thing, also in verse 22, is to make known his power. To show that he is not without the power and the ability and the will to judge sin and to reveal wrath against sin. As Paul said back in Romans 1.18, against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men just as he had done with Pharaoh. Verse 17, here in Romans 9, For the Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. And as it was with Pharaoh, so it is for all men. And then thirdly, on the other side, his choice of some and not others is to, verse 23, Make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. Paul says that God, enduring with much patience, in verse 22, with much long-suffering, that those whom he has not chosen to save but to leave in their sin, that that he deals with them, that he, he, he waits for them, he endures them, For the purpose of demonstrating his wrath, making known his power to demonstrate that wrath and to to judge sin and sinners and that the existence and the persistence of sin and of sinners and of God allowing them to go on in their sin, not wiping them out at the moment that they sin, but letting them go on, and that's both in the case of an individual sinner and in seeing this pattern of sin continue throughout the history of the world, all of that, Paul says, serves to make known, to make abundantly apparent his mercy, 
His glory. And not just His glory, but as Paul says, the riches of His glory. The magnificence of the grace and the mercy of God extended to those to whom He has willed to show it. Now, as we consider these things, God's great patience and long-suffering and and, and the revelation both now and especially on the last day of His glorious riches to us, His wondrous mercy, we also have to consider in this passage those on whom these things are bestowed. Paul refers to them in verse 22 as the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction and in verse 23 as vessels of mercy which he has prepared beforehand for glory. And herein lies some difficulty and not a little disagreement even among Christians and churches and denominations. Because here, in addition to the doctrine of election, which has permeated, of course, this chapter so far, We also see here pretty explicitly stated another doctrine, which has also really permeated this, which we may not have recognized as such. And that is the doctrine of reprobation. The Bible's teaching that the sovereign God, who could have, we we said that he could have chose to save no one and been perfectly just, well, he also could have chosen to save everyone. But he has, for his own purpose and his own glory, not so chosen. He has chosen to leave some in their sin. And the idea here of of vessels, vessels of wrath, vessels of mercy, comes from this well-attested figure, this analogy of the potter and the clay. One of the primary things that potters create are vessels, cups, Pots, lamps, urns, etc. Items that are meant to hold or to contain something else. Water, wine, or food, oil, what have you. And Paul says that there are vessels made by the potter which are determined by the potter to be filled with or to be recipients of either mercy or wrath. Either salvation or judgment and punishment. Now we'll start with verse 23. The vessels of mercy, of course, are not a problem. These are those, uh, the next verse tells us that they are taken from both the Jews and the Gentiles. They are those who are chosen by God to receive His mercy, to be vessels of that mercy. Because He has mercy on whom He will, remember. This is the doctrine of election. And these are the elect. But what of the others? What about the vessels of wrath? They are those who are not elect. They are those that God chooses to pass over. They are those whom God, again, based on His sovereign authority and right as the sovereign God who owes salvation to no one, that He nonetheless has chosen, or that he has chosen to withhold that mercy from. They are the, the Ishmaels and the Esau's and the Judas Iscariots. They are the goats. Uh, 
as opposed to Christ's sheep. If there are elect, there must be non-elect. If mercy is not shown to all, then God has certainly chosen to show justice to the rest. If there are those, as Luke wrote in the book of Acts, who are appointed unto eternal life, there must be those who are not appointed to eternal life. And Matthew 11, verses 25 and 26, 2 Timothy 19 and 20, 2, 19 and 20, Jude 4, 1 Peter 2, 8, along with this chapter, all teach this truth as well as as common sense teaches, that if there are a group of people and if God could save all, but he chooses to save some, that he has also chosen not to save the others. Really, that's the subject of this chapter. Paul is explaining why not all physical Israel are being saved and why they won't be saved and why God does not intend for all of them to be saved. The answer that he has put forward is, must be, cannot otherwise be than that God has not chosen to save all of them. And Paul's point again is that is God's will. That is God's doing. That is God's choice. That is God's purpose. That is God's right. But there's one other thing that we need to address, something that even more grates against our sensibilities here, against our understanding of fairness. And that is what Paul says at the very end of verse 22, that these vessels of wrath upon whom God, despite showing much patience and endurance, still does and will display his wrath, that these vessels of wrath, Paul says, are prepared destruction. Again, we like the idea at the end of verse 23 that says that the the vessels of mercy are prepared for glory, but that there are people who are prepared for destruction is difficult. And if you've read through Romans 9, you've hit this. If you've talked about Romans 9, you've hit this. I think we can make it a little less difficult if you bear with me for just a few more moments. Here's the bottom line in in understanding this vessels prepared for destruction. I think this is the the release valve for, for our anxiety on this. And that is to remember that Paul is talking here about God dealing with sinful people understood as already fallen, already considered or considered as already fallen. That is to say, this is not a picture of God creating or even decreeing to create people specifically to be destroyed. But it is a picture of God dealing with people who are already fallen, and and making a decision on what to do with them. Or at least dealing with them as members of fallen humanity, not as mere creatures considered apart from their fallenness. And the proof for this is in the context 
of this passage. We talked about the importance of context. The major statement by Paul at the beginning of these verses dealing with this question of the, the justice of God and choosing some and not others is this in, in chapter 9 verse 15. I will have mercy, he says, on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And that it depends on God who has mercy. And then verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So listen here. The fact that Paul begins this discussion, begins these verses with reference to God showing mercy proves what I'm saying. Since mercy is an attitude or an action that is made in reference to guilt, to sinfulness, to fallenness, Man considered as man, before any consideration of the fall, man not considered as fallen, but just considered as a creature, would have no need for mercy. Only when mankind is considered as fallen is there any context or any need for a discussion of mercy. And if it's so for one category, it's so for the other category. Paul's illustration supports this too. The illustration remembers Pharaoh. And in his case, it's the hardening of his heart, the preparation for destruction, if you will, that is important. And in Pharaoh's case, we see that, that even the mention of God hardening Pharaoh's heart is in the context of a fallen creature. In Pharaoh's case, there are seven mentions of Pharaoh hardening his own heart before we read specifically that God hardened Pharaoh's heart in chapter 9, verse 12. So when God is said to harden Pharaoh's heart, Pharaoh himself has already been hard at it himself. Now, God is not merely reacting to him. Twice before Pharaoh hardens his own heart, there's a prophecy or there are prophetic statements that God would harden Pharaoh's heart. But for God to harden Pharaoh's heart, it requires some quality of his heart for God to harden. And that's what we see in Pharaoh hardening his own heart. So those who are prepared for destruction are those whom God has already allowed or already decreed to allow along with the rest of humanity to fall into sin and these vessels of wrath are then prepared for destruction when God chooses to leave them in their sin to go their own way so it is not God creating or decreeing to create a person specifically to send them to hell it is God making a decision to decree that some of fallen humanity he will leave in their fallenness. That is how they are prepared for destruction. Yes, it is a sovereign act of a sovereign God to leave some people in their sin instead of showing them mercy. But as Paul has been laboring all along, that's God's prerogative. That's God's right as the potter over the clay when he gives them up to impurity, 
back Romans 1 again, um, to dishonorable passions, to a debased mind. He is doing what it is his right to do. But it is also his prerogative through his enduring with patience those those vessels of wrath and letting them go on in their sin and ultimately to judge them. Through that, God shines a spotlight then on the mercy that he has shown to you, Christian. You derive benefit from that as God derives glory from that. We who, through no doing of our own, have become the apple of his eye. His beloved sons and daughters, those that he himself has prepared for glory. Glory now, glory in the judgment, and glory into eternity. As we rejoice in the fact that God has chosen to save us, not because we're so eminently savable or save-worthy, because we're not, but because he has chosen to take us out of our sin and through the work of his Son to make us vessels of mercy. And to that we say, Amen. Father, we, we know that these are some deep things and we know that people disagree on them, but we thank you that your, your word is clear on these things. We pray that you would give us minds to, to understand. We pray that you would give us hearts to receive. We pray that you would give us humility to exercise as we consider these things. And even, Lord, as we discuss them with others, that we would be gracious, that we would speak words that minister to the, the occasion, that we would seek to build people up even when we disagree on on particular topics. But we thank you, Lord, that you are sovereign, that it is your right as the potter over the clay to do as you will. And we thank you that though you could have left us all to judgment, that you and your grace have determined to show us mercy. We will forever be grateful for that. Help us to be grateful now. Thank you, we pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus, who is our righteousness. Amen.